I'm Lisa Stone. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Parenting Aces. Welcome to the Parenting Aces podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Stone, and this week we are going to be speaking once again with Coach Todd Whittem about a variety of topics, but mainly about the junior development process and how it relates to college tennis and how that relates to professional tennis. Y'all have heard Todd on the Parenting Aces podcast many, many times in the past. I love chatting with him because there are no holds barred when Todd's on. He tells it like it is. There's no BSing. It is just truth. So without further ado, let me bring Todd on and we will get going. Good morning, Todd. It's your birthday today. Happy birthday. Thanks very much, Lisa. I appreciate it. This is a very nice birthday gift from you. Oh, that's sweet. Well, so my audience knows we are actually recording this a week ahead of time. So it, it is Tuesday morning, but it's a week before air day. And I don't know what it's doing in Florida, but it's still raining here. And I'm supposed to have drills later today. So it's not looking like that's going to happen. <laughs> uh, well, bummer for your all the people in Georgia, but uh, I already have some kids doing physical training uh, starting at 6.30 in the morning. So they're out there already uh, get, getting ready for my, for my uh, training day. So I'm sure they're, they're having a lovely time in the heat in uh, South Florida. You're a taskmaster, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the, the, kid, the kids, they come to me for, for a certain level of training and fitness and management of their tennis career. So, uh, I'm more than happy to show them what it's going to take for them to achieve their goals and dreams. I love it. I love it. Well, speaking of goals and dreams, one of the goals and dreams that we hear about most often at Parenting Aces is the opportunity to play college tennis. And so I thought we would chat a little bit about the pathway to college tennis and then transitioning from college to the professional tour and one of the things that you brought to my attention was the number of former college players currently in the top 100 on either the ATP or the WTA tour and how low that number is. Yeah. So basically I was watching um, the Indian Wells tournament and the Miami tournament. I started to see how, how fantastic Daniel Collins was playing and uh and she had four great years of college tennis and uh so I started doing a little bit of my research about how many college players are in the top 100 on both the ATP tour and the WTA tour and so currently right now there's four men on the ATP tour that played college tennis and there's and Daniel Collins is now the second woman currently in the top 100 on the uh, on the women's tour and so i thought we should speak about uh speak about those numbers on on your show and uh and basically i was one of those players back in 2001 when i signed to play for the university of miami and uh, i was one of those players that had a dream dreams and goals of becoming a professional tennis player so i went through that college route so i think a lot of a lot of parents would uh would appreciate this show on really what it takes and kind of the ins and outs of going to college and trying to become one of the elite tennis players in the world. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting topic to tackle. And I mean, especially in light of last week's show, which focused on the USC men's college program and, you know, all the success that they've had at USC. Interestingly, one of the top 100 men that went to college is Stevie Johnson, who is a USC product. He's, uh, as of the taping of this show, he's number 53 in the world. And, and let's just mention the others that are in the top 100 right now. We've got Kevin Anderson at number eight. Kevin played for Illinois and Kevin is, is South America, uh, South African, excuse me. We also have John Isner at number nine, who played for University of Georgia and Tennis Sangren at 49, who played at University of Tennessee. And then on the women, in addition to Danielle at number 45, and Danielle played for University of Virginia, we also have Jen Brady at 85, who played at my alma mater, UCLA. So, you know, those are programs that are traditionally in the top. Um, They make the tournament every year. They have a good showing. So presumably they recruit well. They have great coaching staffs. But why are these numbers so low? And and I'm going to apologize right now because Sully is standing next to me and he's growling at my window for some reason. So if he barks, um, I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> um, what? Why are the numbers so low? Yeah, I mean, or is that well, low? Is four and two good? Um. Well, there's 96 on the men's side that did not go to college, and then there's 98 on the women's side that that did. Uh, that did not go to college as well. So I believe the numbers are low. Um, I think that it's, it's a risky, risky proposition for any, any person to forego college. You have to really make sure that many things are in place. Um, If I take myself for an example, I started playing professional tennis at 16 years old. So I was playing the lowest level of professional tennis tournaments, which are futures. And uh, I was going off and trying to qualify in and make the main draws, and I was able to do that a bunch of times. But uh, I drew guys that that were that were men, and I was still physically developing at 16 years old. And uh, and and I would lose. These men were ranked in the 200s and 300s in the world, and they were they were obviously very good players. But I was excited to be able to have chances at playing them, and and I, I played well against them. But I wasn't ready at at 16 to be beating them. I wasn't really good in good enough or physically developed and, 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 you know, a whole host of things. Um, when I turned pro out of college after two years at the university of Miami and achieving basically almost all of my goals there, then I was physically and emotionally ready to, to try to become a professional tennis player. Um, I had been around it my whole life, so I, I I understood kind of what it was about, but I had, my coach was managing, everything from the tennis to the the financial aspect and, and managing the tournament scheduling and all of these things. Um, there's a whole, a whole host of things that have to be managed for, for any of these individuals that you see in the top hundred to, to be earning a living at tennis. You don't just throw a kid out there on the professional tour and, and really just hope to, for, for them to be making it as a pro that that's not a recipe for success. So, Really, there's there's a big financial commitment. There's coaches, there's physios, there's scheduling. There's so many things that have to be in place. 
for any of these players, whether they're the top players in the world or or lower ranked players, for them to be producing great tennis at a high level. Right. Well, so why do you think that we only have four men and two women in the top hundred? What's going on in college tennis? And I, I let me just say these are the singles rankings. When we look at the doubles rankings, the numbers are much better. Yeah, they are. I mean, I, 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 didn't, I didn't do any research really on the doubles rankings. Um, there are guys that I competed with on the ATP tour that are they're still playing doubles, and, and, and I competed with Kevin Anderson and John Isner as well, and, and they're doing fantastic in singles. Um, wh- why are the numbers very low? Well, for, for many families, obviously education is extremely important, um, especially in the United States. I think it could be very scary for, for parents to be sending their kids onto the professional tour without going the college route. That, that's, that's number one. Um, if, if, you're, if your son or daughter is an elite player, they could be earning scholarships that are, that are worth a quarter million dollars. So to pass that up is, uh, you know, you know is, is a very, very difficult decision. Um, so, but going back to, you know, why, why the numbers are so low, I, I believe that obviously there's a lot of distractions when you're in college, whether they're good or bad. Good distractions, you're studying well, you're at a fantastic school, um, but, you know, you could be going out at night, boyfriends, girlfriends, um, you know, a lot, you know, partying at night, you know, there's, there's a lot of good distractions and there, and there's, and there's distractions that, that aren't so good. Um, so it, it really depends on that individual, how, how disciplined and how mature they're going to be about using their college years. If they're really serious about becoming a professional tennis player, um, in terms of, in terms of development, the development starts much earlier on than, than before these juniors go to college. And so I've, I've written articles. I know you've published them, Lisa, is that when you go to college tennis, you want to make sure that your son or daughter is a produced tennis player. And what I mean by that is their game is well-rounded and well-suited for when they walk through that door in college tennis, that they are ready to be playing at a very high level. If your son or daughter is going into college tennis thinking that um, you know, the coach needs to develop my forehand still or my backhand or my return to serve or serve or, or whatever aspects your son or daughter is, is struggling in, that's that's not really the basis of, of what they're doing in college tennis. Um, the basis of, of college tennis is you go in and and you're you're competing in matches and you're and you're growing and you're and you're taking classes and you're getting a great education and a phenomenal experience and you're going to make lifelong friends. And it's a, it's a fantastic environment for that. Is it a fantastic environment for I'm going to be really producing and developing into a world-class tennis player? That's, that's a different discussion. Um, there are certain things that college is fantastic for. There's certain things that college is, is not fantastic for, which is, which is, which is normal, right? You know, right. I mean, there's pros and cons. There's pros and cons for, for everything in life. Um, now that I'm coaching, I look back on my University of Miami experience, and there were definitely positives, but there were big-time negatives. And, uh, and so, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult decision, um, but 
when when you're when you're in when you're in college and you're seeing people your age um that that are professional tennis players and they're thriving at the pro level and you're in college and you're studying and everything sometimes that's not a comforting feeling it wasn't such a comforting feeling for me as i was you know play, playing at a very high level at 16 17 18 years old and i was in college and then the guys i was competing with were already making big time inroads on the professional tour and and i was one of the top elite college players mm-hmm. so and i wanted to get out and i wanted to go and play professional tennis and 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 make inroads uh, at the highest level i had always wanted to do that since i was a little kid and it was always managed for me to be trying to get to that level so you know it really depends on the individual depends on your team it depends on the management depends on the financial aspect there's there's a lot of things that have to be in place so that it's actually realistic for for these players to be playing at the highest level but the flip side of that todd and i i know you agree with me here is the the percentage of high level juniors that go on to have profitable professional tennis careers is so low i mean if you are outside if you're outside the top 150, it's costing you money to be on tour. If you're outside the top 100, you're not making money. You're breaking even, right? I mean, that that's kind of the – those are the two kind of big milestones. So if you have the opportunity to spend four years getting an education that's being – at least partially paid for by the university, continuing, as you said, to mature physically and emotionally. And if you are playing at the top of the lineup at your school, which I think that's another piece of the puzzle that we need to delve a little deeper into is where in the lineup are you going to play when you get to college? Because the competition at five and six is very excuse me, very different than the competition at lines one and two. But, you know, unless there's some major something that's happening in your game that says to you, I can get out on tour at age 18 and immediately break into the top 100, why wouldn't you go to college? Well, I think every case is different. Um some parents can financially afford to to support their children, and they may they may have money put away for their college education. Are they going to miss out on all the beautiful experiences and going out and partying and taking classes and and just such a fun environment? Yeah, they're gonna they're gonna miss out on that. Um, Ninety six on the men's tour weren't thinking of college tennis, or maybe they were, but they didn't they didn't take that route. And ninety eight of them on the women's tour did not take that route as well. Um, so I'm not saying that kids should forego college or kids should go to college. This show is about the the reality of, of kind of what's going on on the professional tour and, and how, and how many went the college route. Um, in terms of, in terms of, you know, the d- development, which, if you're going to become a professional tennis player, you want to always be developing really well and everything. If when you, when you look at these players, they were dominating college tennis and I, and I can give you, I can give you an example. 
when I entered the college tennis arena at the University of Miami, it was made very clear. And here, here were the goals and the, and, and the results were basically, Todd, you're going to play number one singles. You have to win an, a minimum of 80% of your matches at number one. And, and one, of my, one of my personal goals was I wanted to be an All-American. So This is I'll, as I'll, a freshman, you're yeah. saying. This is coming in as a freshman. Yeah. This okay. is coming in as a freshman. I was coming in. The coach knew that I was going to play number one. And, and the goal was to win NCAAs. So these goals were met. It, it was basically throughout my tennis career, whether I was a junior, a college player, or on the tour, there were goals. It was managed. It was very organized. And, and basically, you, I did not move on to the next level until those goals were met, period. And let me point out, let me, I'm sorry to keep interrupting you, but I want to just point out that when you were playing at University of Miami, uh, the current NCAA rules in terms of age of players and time between high school and college, those rules were not in place yet. So as an 18 year old freshman, you were likely seeing it at line one, 25 year olds across the net. Right. Yeah, I, I saw I saw them all the time. I was playing right. many times against twenty or twenty-one year old freshmen. Mm-hmm. Did, did did I really care? No, I thought it was a fantastic opportunity. So I love. Well, I'm not. I'm saying it in terms of physical and emotional development as an 18 year old physically and emotionally. I mean, of course, you had already been playing futures and challengers and and were used to seeing opponents that were much more developed physically and emotionally than you were. So this wasn't a new scenario for you. But I just want the listeners to understand that that was the reality of college tennis when you were playing. Now it's it's a little less likely, although if a, an 18-year-old freshman is playing number one, um, they could definitely be playing against a 22, 23-year-old senior. Right. Right. No, that's that's definitely realistic. I mean, in, 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 college, in college tennis, they're, they're – the way that I look at it, the reality is, is that if your son or daughter wants to be a professional tennis player and play at the highest level, and anyone can turn pro, I, you could have 15-year-olds turn pro, and they can not win matches, but they can consider themselves professional tennis players. That, that, that can happen. But if it's really realistic and you go the college tennis route, you have to dominate. These guys, these guys Isner and Johnson and, and, uh, and Anderson and, and then the girls, you know, Jen Brady and, and Daniel Collins, these these men and women dominated college tennis. They dominated. So now they're playing at the upper echelon of professional tennis. They they didn't get lucky to get there. It wasn't that they played four through six on their team and they were fighting for a spot. No, no, that that that's a whole different that's a whole different level. They they dominated. And so that's why the goals when I when I went into college tennis were so lofty that you must win 80% of your matches at, at number one singles and you've got to achieve, you know, the all American status and you have to win NCAAs. Right. And so I was able to achieve my goals except for winning NCAAs. And I was pretty close. I lost a very close match, but I was emotionally and physically ready. Plus my results when I started playing professional tennis said, you're, you're ready for pro tennis. So everything was managed. There was no guessing. Well, I hope, he can do this. I'm not sure if he can do that. That that's that's not how it works. 
Right. Well, and, and let's just, let's talk tennis Sangren for a second because of the four men that are currently in the top hundred, four former college players that are currently in the top hundred, tennis has had a long and winding road to the top hundred. He didn't come out of college and immediately start doing well on the pro tour. He spent a lot of time in the futures and challengers. Right. That's, and that's yeah, and uh, and I mean, he had a breakthrough at the Australian Open this year. That and even he talks about this now in his his post match interviews that he's just going to enjoy this as long as he can because he doesn't know if all of this is even going to be available to him after this year if he doesn't do as well at the Australian Open next year and those points drop off his ranking. That well, that that is correct. That that's a that's a whole other discussion. Is basically. When you enter the tour, many many of the professional players, they don't know your game. They don't know your game style. They don't know how to play you. But now everyone is watching him and they understand his game style. So you have that factor to deal with, but you also have the factor of, well, this year is pressure-free and I'm enjoying myself at the ATP level and everything is fantastic. But then when you turn around and he starts the Australian Open of 2019, now there's pressure. There's a lot of pressure to defend those points. And if he's not defending those points, then he's not going to be back at that ATP level. He'll be back in the challenger level trying to fight his way back into the ATP tournament. So that's that's what he's talking about. Right. And so he's a bit of an anomaly. Yeah, I, 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 would, I would say so. I mean... You know, I don't. I don't know Tennis Sangren, and and I don't know Steve Johnson, but I do know Kevin Kevin Anderson, and I know John Isner. I competed with these guys, and so I saw their development, and I played obviously played against them, and I understood how they how they played and everything. So it was very exciting, and and everything when they when they started to play very well, I understood kind of why and how they started to really develop their games outside of college when when they were done with their college tennis careers. And so I always thought that they could become excellent players and everything on the tour. And obviously they have, but they needed, they needed things in place and they needed certain things to be developed for, for these results to come about. There's an interesting story about John Isner. You know, he's, he played at university of Georgia. So I watched him play all through college. Um, My son was at tennis camp when, when he was on the team and he, came out and worked with the kids during the summer tennis camps and he was, he was awesome. But you know, when he entered college, it was not with the idea of being a professional tennis player. I mean, he never thought that that was in his future and coach Manny Diaz saw something in him and worked with him and got him ready for the tour. And when he finished at Georgia, I mean, he made inroads really quickly on the ATP tour. Yeah, he did. He did. Um, I mean, it doesn't hurt to be six foot fifty or right. <laughs> however tall he is so, with that massive so, serve and forehand. So, if if people really want to know a little bit about John Isner, I, I, I was able to play him. I played him at a Challenger in Kentucky, and I knew he was six foot eleven. And so, he, here's a little story for everyone. So, basically, I think he was still in college. I can't remember the year. I'd have to look this up, but. So I go to, I go to play a challenger and it's a it's a challenger circuit leading into the US Open and um and so I draw a wild card. I believe he was a wild card, John Isner, and all I knew is that he was six foot eleven. 
So I spoke to my coach, Pierre, over the phone. I was traveling overnight um, from California. And uh, and so all we were speaking about was I better hold serve or I'm in big trouble. So anyway, so, so yeah, I mean, obviously, right? Right. So, and I'm traveling a little underprepared because I, I made it far in the tournament before. And so I was barely able to, able to practice going into Kentucky and the time change and, and whatever. So anyway, so I drew him and I played a very good match about him. But my God, that serve was unbelievable. I remember walking into the locker room and I had done a lot of training with Andy Roddick, who at that time had the biggest serve on the tour. And I walked in and I, and I told everyone into the locker room, I said, this guy has the best serve I've ever seen. And it's better than Roddick's. I've done a lot of training with Roddick and this is the best one I've ever seen. And so with John Isner, he, he actually, he, he, he did pretty well. He got a wild card into Washington and I believe he made the final or he won the tournament, but, um, but he was still playing a bunch of challengers and he was ranked around 150. And I was actually having one of the best weeks of my career. And it was at San Jose at the ATP in California and I was sitting there in the, in the players' lounge, and I really liked John, and, and, and we were talking. And, and he was out there on his own, and he, at that time he didn't have a coach. And, and so I, I told him, I said, John, you have to get a coach who really can develop and, and, and help you with your game. And soon after that, he hired a guy that you probably see in the stands. Craig Boynton. Yeah. Johnson and Sam Query, and his name is yeah. Craig Boynton. Yeah. And he hired Craig Boynton and his career changed. Yeah. And so then he was finally in place to be playing, you know, a much higher level brand of tennis and improving things that he needed to improve. And so, and then he ended up doing quite well. And then he, he's had some other very good coaches and everything, but he was also a guy that was a little bit lost and, you know, and on the tour. And, and so things weren't, weren't managed or, or whatever the case shall be. But when he hired, a great coach that, that could develop professional tennis players, then he was on his way. Yeah. And I mean, Stevie had a similar trajectory, you know, I, I, before he passed, I I had the opportunity to interview Stevie's dad many times and, and develop a, a friendship with him. And, you know, he talked very freely about Stevie's decision to go to USC and, um, Stevie had trained with, with Rance Brown at, um, at UCLA since the time he was a young kid. And Rance was the women's coach at UCLA and really wanted Stevie to come to UCLA. And Peter Smith was, you know, recruiting him pretty vigorously and understood that professional tennis was in his future. And that was what he wanted to do. And, and Peter worked very, very intensely with Stevie to help get him ready for the tour. And, you know, I mean, it, as you said, it was, it was a very um, concerted effort to develop a plan to have goals in place and to understand what the process looked like and how to get there. And uh, I'm Lisa Stone. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Parenting Aces. 
Welcome to the Parenting Aces podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Stone, and this week we are going to be speaking once again with Coach Todd Whittem about a variety of topics, but mainly about the junior development process and how it relates to college tennis and how that relates to professional tennis. Y'all have heard Todd on the Parenting Aces podcast many, many times in the past. I love chatting with him because there are no holds barred when Todd's on. He tells it like it is. There's no BSing. It is just truth. So without further ado, let me bring Todd on and we will get going. Good morning, Todd. It's your birthday today. Happy birthday. Thanks very much, Lisa. I appreciate it. This is a very nice birthday gift from you. Oh, that's sweet. Well, so my audience knows we are actually recording this a week ahead of time. So it, it is Tuesday morning, but it's a week before air day. And I don't know what it's doing in Florida, but it's still raining here. And I'm supposed to have drills later today. So it's not looking like that's going to happen. <laughs> uh, well, bummer for your all the people in Georgia, but uh, I already have some kids doing physical training uh, starting at 6.30 in the morning. So they're out there already uh, get, getting ready for my, for my uh, training day. So I'm sure they're, they're having a lovely time in the heat in uh, South Florida. You're a taskmaster, man. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the, the, kid, the kids, they come to me for, for a certain level of training and fitness and management of their tennis career. So uh, I'm more than happy to show them what it's going to take for them to achieve their goals and dreams. I love it. I love it. Well, speaking of goals and dreams, one of the goals and dreams that we hear about most often at Parenting Aces is the opportunity to play college tennis. And so I thought we would chat a little bit about the pathway to college tennis and then transitioning from college to the professional tour. And one of the things that you brought to my attention was the number of former college players currently in the top 100 on either the ATP or the WTA tour and how low that number is. Yeah. So basically I was watching um, the Indian Wells tournament and the Miami tournament. I started to see how, how fantastic Daniel Collins was playing and, uh, and she had four great years of college tennis. And uh, so I started doing a little bit of my research about how many college players are in the top 100 on both the ATP Tour and the WTA Tour. And so currently, right now, there's four men on the ATP Tour that played college tennis. And there's and Daniel Collins is now the second woman currently in the top 100 on the, uh, on the women's tour. And so I thought we should speak about uh speak about those numbers on on your show and uh and basically I was one of those players back in 2001 when I signed to play for the University of Miami and uh I was one of those players that had a dream dreams and goals of becoming a professional tennis player so I went through that college route so I think a lot of a lot of parents would uh would appreciate this show on really what it takes and kind of the ins and outs of going to college and trying to become one of the elite tennis players in the world. Yeah. I mean, I think it's an interesting topic to tackle. And I mean, especially in light of last week's show, which focused on the USC men's college program and, you know, all the success that they've had at USC, 
interestingly, one of the top 100 men that went to college is Stevie Johnson, who is a USC product. He's, uh, as of the taping of this show, he's number 53 in the world. And, and let's just mention the others that are in the top 100 right now. We've got Kevin Anderson at number eight. Kevin played for Illinois and Kevin is, is South America, uh, South African, excuse me. We also have John Isner at number nine, who played for University of Georgia and Tennis Sangren at 49, who played at University of Tennessee. And then on the women, in addition to Danielle at number 45, and Danielle played for University of Virginia, we also have Jen Brady at 85, who played at my alma mater, UCLA. So, you know, those are programs that are traditionally in the top. Um, They make the tournament every year. They have a good showing. So presumably they recruit well. They have great coaching staffs. But why are these numbers so low? And and I'm going to apologize right now because Sully is standing next to me and he's growling at my window for some reason. So if he barks, um, I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> um, what? Why are the numbers so low? Yeah, I mean, or is that well, low? Is four and two good? Um, well, there's 96 on the men's side that did not go to college, and then there's 98 on the women's side that that did. Uh, that did not go to college as well. So I believe the numbers are low. Um, I think that it's, it's a risky, risky proposition for any, any person to forego college. You have to really make sure that many things are in place. Um, If I take myself for an example, I started playing professional tennis at 16 years old. So I was playing the lowest level of professional tennis tournaments, which are futures. And uh, I was going off and trying to qualify in and make the main draws. And I was able to do that a bunch of times. But uh, I drew guys that, that were that were men. And I was still physically developing at 16 years old. And, uh, and, and I would lose. These men were ranked in the 200s and 300s in the world. And they were, they were obviously very good players. But I was excited to be able to have chances at playing them. And, and I, I played well against them. But I wasn't ready at, at 16 to be beating them. I wasn't really good enough good enough or physically developed and, 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 you know, a whole host of things. Um, when I turned pro out of college after two years at the university of Miami and achieving basically almost all of my goals there, then I was physically and emotionally ready to, to try to become a professional tennis player. Um, I had been around it my whole life, so I, I, under, I understood kind of what it was about, but I had, my coach was managing, everything from the tennis to the the financial aspect and, and managing the tournament scheduling and all of these things. Um, there's a whole, a whole host of things that have to be managed for, for any of these individuals that you see in the top hundred to, to be earning a living at tennis. You don't just throw a kid out there on the professional tour and, and really just hope to, for, for them to be making it as a pro that that's not a recipe for success. So, Really, there's there's a big financial commitment. There's coaches, there's physios, there's scheduling. There's so many things that have to be in place for any of these players, whether they're the top players in the world or or lower ranked players, for them to be producing great tennis at a high level. Right. Well, so why do you think that 
we only have four men and two women in the top hundred. What's going on in college tennis? And I, I let me just say these are the singles rankings. When we look at the doubles rankings, the numbers are much better. Yeah, they are. I mean, I, I, I didn't I didn't do any research really on the doubles rankings. Um, there are guys that I competed with on the ATP tour that are they're still playing doubles, and, and and I competed with Kevin Anderson and John Isner as well, and, and they're doing fantastic in singles. Um, what, why are the numbers very low? Well, for for many families, obviously education is extremely important, um, especially in the United States. I think it could be very scary for for parents to be sending their kids onto the professional tour without going the college route. That that's that's number one. Um, if if your if your son or daughter is an elite player, they could be earning scholarships that are that are worth a quarter million dollars. So to pass that up is uh you know, you know, is is a very, very difficult decision. Um so but going back to you know why why the numbers are so low, I I believe that obviously there's a lot of distractions when you're in college, whether they're good or bad. Good distractions. You're studying well. You're at a fantastic school, um, but you know you could be going out at night, boyfriends, girlfriends. Um, you know, a lot. You know, going partying at night. You know, there's there's a lot of good distractions, and there and there's and there's distractions that that aren't so good. Um, so it it really depends on that individual how how disciplined and how mature they're going to be about using their college years if they're really serious about becoming a professional tennis player. Um, in terms of, in terms of development, the development starts much earlier on than, than before these juniors go to college. And so I've, I've written articles. I know you've published them, Lisa, is that when you go to college tennis, you want to make sure that your son or daughter is a produced tennis player. And what I mean by that is, their game is well-rounded and well-suited for when they walk through that door in college tennis, that they are ready to be playing at a very high level. If your son or daughter is going into college tennis thinking that um, the coach needs to develop my forehand still or my backhand or my return to serve or serve or or whatever aspects your son or daughter is is struggling in, that's that's not really the basis of, of what they're doing in college tennis. Um, the basis of, of college tennis is you go in and and you're you're competing in matches and you're and you're growing and you're and you're taking classes and you're getting a great education and a phenomenal experience and you're going to make lifelong friends and it's a it's a fantastic environment for that. Is it a fantastic environment for I'm going to be really producing and developing into a world class tennis player? That that's a different discussion. Um, there are certain things that college is fantastic for. There's certain things that college is, is not fantastic for, which is, which is, which is normal. Right? You know, right. I mean, there's pros and cons. there's pros and cons for, for everything in life. Um, now that I'm coaching, I look back on my university of Miami experience and there were definitely positives, but there were big time negatives. And, uh, and so, you know, it's a, uh, it's, it's a, it's a difficult decision. Um, but when when you're when you're in when you're in college and you're seeing people your age um, that that are professional tennis players and they're thriving at the pro level and you're in college and you're studying and everything, 
sometimes that's not a comforting feeling. It wasn't such a comforting feeling for me as I was, you know, play, playing at a very high level at 16, 17, 18 years old. And I was in college. And then the guys I was competing with were already making big time inroads on the professional tour. And, and I was one of the top elite college players. Mm-hmm. So, and I wanted to get out and I wanted to go and play professional tennis and, 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 and make inroads uh, at the highest level. I had always wanted to do that since I was a little kid and it was always managed for me to be trying to get to that level. So, you know, it really depends on the individual, depends on your team. It depends on the management, depends on the financial aspect. There's, there's a lot of things that have to be in place so that it's actually realistic for, for these players to be playing at the highest level. But the flip side of that, Todd, and I I know you agree with me here is the, the percentage of, high-level juniors that go on to have profitable professional tennis careers is so low. I mean, if you are outside, if you're outside the top 150, it's costing you money to be on tour. If you're outside the top 100, you're not making money. You're breaking even, right? I mean, that that's kind of the, those are the two kind of big milestones. So if you have the opportunity to spend four years getting an education that's being at least partially paid for by the university, continuing, as you said, to mature physically and emotionally, and if you are playing at the top of the lineup at your school, which I think that's another piece of the puzzle that we need to delve a little deeper into is where in the lineup are you going to play when you get to college? Because the competition at five and six is very, excuse me, very different than the competition at lines one and two. But, you know, unless there's some major something that's happening in your game that says to you, I can get out on tour at age 18 and immediately break into the top hundred, why wouldn't you go to college? Well, I think every case is different. Um, some parents can financially afford to, to support their children and they may, they may have money put away for their college education. Are they going to miss out on all the beautiful experiences and going out and partying and taking classes and, and just such a fun environment. Yeah, they're going to they're going to miss out on that. Um 96 on the men's tour weren't thinking of college tennis or maybe they were but they didn't they didn't take that route and 98 of them on the women's tour did not take that route as well. Um so I'm not saying that kids should forego college or kids should go to college. This show is about the the reality of of kind of what's going on on the professional tour and, and how and how many went the college route. Um, in terms of in terms of you know the d- development, which if you're going to become a professional tennis player, you want to always be developing really well and everything. If when you when you look at these players, they were dominating college tennis, and I and I can give you I can give you an example. When I entered the college tennis arena at the University of Miami, it was made very clear. And here, here were the goals and the, and, and the results were basically, Todd, you're going to play number one singles. 
you have to win an, a minimum of 80% of your matches at number one. And, and one of my, one of my personal goals was I wanted to be an all American. So this I'll, is I'll as a freshman, it. you're yeah. saying this is coming in as a freshman. Yeah. This okay. is coming in as a freshman. I was coming in. The coach knew that I was going to play number one and, and the goal was to win NCAAs. So these goals were met. It, it was basically throughout my tennis career, whether I was a junior or college player or on the tour, there were goals. It was managed. It was very organized. And, and basically you, I did not move on to the next level until those goals were met. Period. And let me point out, let me, I'm sorry to keep interrupting you, but I want to just point out that when you were playing at University of Miami, uh, the current NCAA rules in terms of age of players and time between high school and college, those rules were not in place yet. So as an 18 year old freshman, you were likely seeing it at line one, 25 year olds across the net. Right. Yeah, I, I saw I saw them all the time. I was playing right. many times against twenty or twenty-one year old freshmen. Mm-hmm. Did, did did I really care? No, I thought it was a fantastic opportunity. So I love. Well, I'm not. I'm saying it in terms of physical and emotional development as an eighteen-year-old, physically and emotionally. I mean, of course, you had already been playing futures and challengers, and and were used to seeing opponents that were much more developed physically and emotionally than you were. So this wasn't a new scenario for you. But I just want the listeners to understand that that was the reality of college tennis when you were playing. Now it's it's a little less likely, although if a, an 18-year-old freshman is playing number one, um, they could definitely be playing against a 22, 23-year-old senior. Right, right. No, that's that's definitely realistic. I mean, in, 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 college, in college tennis, the, the – the way that I look at it, the reality is, is that if your son or daughter wants to be a professional tennis player and play at the highest level, and anyone can turn pro, I, you could have 15-year-olds turn pro, and they can not win matches, but they can consider themselves professional tennis players. That, that, that can happen. But if it's really realistic and you go the college tennis route, you have to dominate. These guys, these guys Isner and Johnson and, and, uh, and Anderson and, and then the girls, you know, Jen Brady and, and Daniel Collins, these these men and women dominated college tennis. They dominated. So now they're playing at the upper echelon of professional tennis. They they didn't get lucky to get there. It wasn't that they played four through six on their team and they were fighting for a spot. You know, that that that's a whole different that's a whole different level. They they dominated. And so that's why the goals when I when I went into college tennis were so lofty that you must win 80% of your matches at, at number one singles, and you've got to achieve you know, the All-American status, and you have to win NCAAs, right? And so I was able to achieve my goals, except for winning NCAAs, and I was pretty close. I lost a very close match, but I was emotionally and physically ready. Plus, my results when I started playing professional tennis said, you're, you're ready for pro tennis. So everything was managed. There was no guessing, well, I hope can do this i'm not sure if he can do that that that's that's not how it works right well and and let's just let's talk tennis sangren for a second because of the four men that are currently in the top hundred four former college players that are 
currently in the top 100. Tennis has had a long and winding road to the top 100. He didn't come out of college and immediately start doing well on the pro tour. He spent a lot of time in the Futures and Challengers. Right. That's, and that's yeah, and and I mean, he had a breakthrough at the Australian Open this year. That and even he talks about this now in his his post match interviews that he's just going to enjoy this as long as he can because he doesn't know if all of this is even going to be available to him after this year if he doesn't do as well at the Australian Open next year and those points drop off his ranking. That well, that that is correct. That that's a that's a whole nother discussion. Is basically. When you enter the tour, many many of the professional players, they don't know your game. They don't know your game style. They don't know how to play you. But now everyone is watching him and they understand his game style. So you have that factor to deal with, but you also have the factor of, well, this year is pressure-free and I'm enjoying myself at the ATP level and everything is fantastic. But then when you turn around and he starts the Australian Open of 2019, now there's pressure. There's a lot of pressure to defend those points. And if he's not defending those points, then he's not going to be back at that ATP level. He'll be back in the challenger level trying to fight his way back into the ATP tournament. So that's that's what he's talking about. Right. And so he's a bit of an anomaly. Yeah, I, 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 would, I would say so. I mean... You know, I don't. I don't know Tennis Sangren, and and I don't know Steve Johnson, but I do know Kevin Kevin Anderson, and I know John Isner. I competed with these guys, and so I saw their development, and I played obviously played against them, and I understood how they how they played and everything. So it was very exciting and and everything when they when they started to play very well. I understood kind of why and how they started to really develop their games outside of college when when they were done with their college tennis careers. And so I always thought that they could become excellent players and everything on the tour. And obviously they have, but they needed, they needed things in place and they needed certain things to be developed for, for these results to come about. There's an interesting story about John Isner. You know, he's, he played at university of Georgia. So I, watched him play all through college. Um, my son was at tennis camp when, when he was on the team and he, came out and worked with the kids during the summer tennis camps and he was, he was awesome. But, you know, when he entered college, it was not with the idea of being a professional tennis player. I mean, he never thought that that was in his future and coach Manny Diaz saw something in him and worked with him and got him ready for the tour. And when he finished at Georgia, I mean, he made inroads really quickly on the ATP tour. Yeah, he did. He did. Um, I mean, it doesn't hurt to be six foot fifty or however all tall he is so, with that massive so, serve and forehand. So, if if people really want to know a little bit about John Isner, I, I I was able to play him. I played him at a Challenger in Kentucky, and I knew he was six foot eleven. And so, he, here's a little story for everyone. So basically, I think he was still in college. I can't remember the year. I'd have to look this up, but. So I go to, I go to play a challenger and it's a it's a challenger circuit leading into the US Open and um and so I draw a wild card. I believe he was a wild card, John Isner, and all I knew is that he was six foot eleven. So I spoke to my coach Pierre over the phone. I was traveling overnight um from California and uh and so all we were speaking about was I better hold serve or I'm in big trouble. 
So anyway, so, so yeah, I mean, obviously, right? Right. So, and I'm traveling a little underprepared because I was, I made it far in the tournament before. And so I was barely able to, able to practice going into Kentucky and the time change and, and whatever. So anyway, so I drew him and I played a very good match about him. But my God, that serve was unbelievable. I remember walking into the locker room and I had done a lot of training with Andy Roddick, who at that time had the biggest serve on the tour. And I walked in and I, and I told everyone into the locker room, I said, this guy has the best serve I've ever seen. And it's better than Roddick's. I've done a lot of training with Roddick and this is the best one I've ever seen. And so with John Isner, he, he actually, he, he, he did pretty well. He got a wild card into Washington and I believe he made the final or he won the tournament, but, um, but he was still playing a bunch of challengers and he was ranked around 150. And I was actually having one of the best weeks of my career. And it was at San Jose at the ATP in California. And I was sitting there in the, in the players lounge and I really like John and, and, and we were talking and, and he was out there on his own. And he, at that time he didn't have a coach and, and, so I, I told him, I said, John, you have to get a coach who really can develop and, and, and help you with your game. And soon after that, he hired a guy that you probably see in the stands. Craig Boynton. Yeah. Johnson and Sam Query, and his name is yeah. Craig Boynton. Yeah. And he hired Craig Boynton, and his career changed. Yeah. And so then he was finally in place to be playing, you know, a much higher level brand of tennis and improving things that he needed to improve. And so, and then he ended up doing quite well. And then he, he's had some other very good coaches and everything, but he was also a guy that was a little bit lost and, you know, and on the tour. And, and so things weren't, weren't managed or, or whatever the case shall be. But when he hired a great coach that, that could develop professional tennis players, then he was on his way. Yeah. And I mean, Stevie had a similar trajectory, you know, I, I, before he passed, I, I had the opportunity to interview Stevie's dad many times and, and develop a, a friendship with him. And, you know, he talked very freely about Stevie's decision to go to USC. And um, Stevie had trained with, with Rance Brown at, um, at UCLA since the time he was a young kid. And Rance was the women's coach at UCLA and really wanted Stevie to come to UCLA. And Peter Smith was, you know, recruiting him pretty vigorously and understood that professional tennis was in his future. And that was what he wanted to do. And, and Peter worked very, very intensely with Stevie to help get him ready for the tour. And, you know, it's, I mean, it, as you said, it was, it was a very, um, concerted effort to develop a plan to have goals in place and to understand what the process looked like and how to get there. And, uh, but, but Stevie's parents were adamant that he go the college tennis route. And even after winning the NCAAs, Stevie decided to come back to USC for his last year, which he didn't have to do. He made that choice to come back and, and help the team get a four-peat with the national championship. And, you know, I think he will say, I mean, I've heard him say this, that that fourth year was was just as important as any other piece of his development. Right. And as, as I say, every, every case is, is different. 
Um, I can tell you that at, at Miami, my my development was 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 coming was coming to a halt, and so I felt like I needed to either do it now or there, it wasn't going to be a reality for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, and and Stevie Johnson probably didn't have, you know, he didn't have uh, have those thoughts, which is fantastic. I mean, college tennis is a is a beautiful thing, but in in my case, you know, I mean, I when when I and I can tell you another story. When I played Orange Bowl in 2001, and there were players like Janko Tipsarevich and Robin Soderling and Juan Monaco, and so I was competing with these guys in in that tournament. I I, I played Tipsarevich, and then I ended up losing to Juan Monaco in a very very close three set match. I went to the University of Miami, and it was a year or two later, and I saw Juan Monaco playing a night match against Gustavo Querton on center court at Miami. Wow. And so what are the thoughts in my brain? The thoughts in my brain are, what am I doing here? Mm-hmm. Right? Why am I at the University of Miami dominating college tennis and I'm watching these guys playing on the biggest stage, one of the biggest stages in, in, in professional tennis, and I'm still here you know, trying, trying to get, get, a, get, into, get into professional tennis. So those are not great feelings. And, I, and I'm sure there are players in college tennis right now that played with the TFOs and, 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 and players like that and juniors and everything. And they're, they're doing quite well in, in college tennis. And I'm sure they're watching these guys and they're earning very nice livings as a professional tennis player. And they're in college tennis saying, what am I doing? here? Why, why am I here? And why aren't I thriving and getting out and playing professional tennis? So yeah, I think that happens a lot. And I, I remember, you know, talking to Noah Rubin's mom about that. Um, Noah was a freshman at Wake Forest and dominating. He got to the finals of the NCAAs and, you know, had a phenomenal year at Wake Forest and decided not to go back his sophomore year for, I think, that very reason. I think, you know, he was watching those guys that he came up with starting to really make some inroads on the pro tour and thought, you know, I'm just, I'm falling further and further behind by not being out there. The flip side is Noah's still outside the top 150. <laughs> so, right. um, you know, would it have served him better to stay in college for another year at least? Uh, who knows? I mean, well, we don't well, know. Yeah. Well, his results at, at the college level were, were, were stellar. Right, he, mm-hmm. he almost won NCAA's. Um, he was winning a very, very high percentage at number one, and you know, with with all of his matches. So there comes a certain time where you know, how much more can you develop, not playing and training every single day with the world's best tennis players, and then going going back to Steve Johnson, with with his development in college, he had a coach that put a lot of time and effort into him becoming. A professional tennis player. That, that's all. That's a whole another ball game that we can speak about. Is that he had a coach and he had his father that they were monitoring his development and trying to produce a professional tennis player, and and that's 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 a different story. I I had that at Miami as well. With Jay Berger was my coach and he was top ten in the world and I grew up watching him train and he was already hitting in my lessons when I was seven eight years old. So I never took a recruiting trip. I went straight to the University of Miami, and I was doing private time with him every single day outside of the team practices. Mm-hmm. So the, the the players were gone, and I was grinding away with Jay for hours 
when other kids were at study hall, um, they, they went to maybe night classes or whatever their schedule was. I was still grinding away, serving buckets and doing private time with Jay so that it was, it was a reality and realistic for me to one day become a professional tennis player. Was it, was it spoken about that, you know, that the, you know, about, about the team and this and that basically if you're, if your goal and it's and it's realistic for you to become a prof, a very high level professional tennis player. Most of the goals and dreams of profess of uh, college tennis players are not to be playing at the highest level of tennis. They want to get a fantastic education. They want to get a great job when they when they uh, when they graduate. They may go out and you know dabble around in some low level professional tournaments just to go out and travel before they enter the real world. That's not a professional tennis player. Uh, this is this is their job. Their job is to go out there, win as many matches as they can at the pro level, and bring home as much money as they can in that certain amount of years. So that that's a pro tennis player, just like there's a professional football player, a professional baseball player. This is no different. So, right. you know, it, it, that's it, it's a it's a whole different ball game producing a professional tennis player and also working out the college tennis team. That those are two totally different things, and. You know, it depends on is the coach really into developing a pro tennis player or are they into winning as many college matches as they can, maybe for their school and for their own benefit. That's 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 a whole nother discussion. Well, and, and I want to point out that since John Isner and his success, University of Georgia has not produced another male player at that level. USC has not produced another male player at the level of Stevie Johnson, you know? So, I mean, (laughs) just as um, reaching that top hundred is such an elite process going through the college system and transferring that into a top hundred position on the pro tour is even more elusive, right? I mean, it's, there's a lot of luck involved. Well, there's there's luck. I, I'm talking I'm talking from the school side. From the school side, I think you know we we all looked at University of Georgia and, and USC as breeding grounds for the pro tour after John and Stevie's success. But the reality is, those schools got an unbelievable recruit with an unbelievable work ethic and very lofty goals and and the desire and ability to put the work in to reach those goals. Right. Well, it also depends on what the coach is recruiting. Um, are they recruiting someone who has goals and dreams of playing at the highest level and it's, and it's realistic for them or they're happy to be going four years and then maybe getting another degree and, and, and getting a fantastic job. Are they doing, are they doing internships in the summer where they could be training and playing professional events to see how good they are? It, it really depends on what they're what they're recruiting. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe not in in John Isner's case because he developed later and being so tall and it, it's really hard to compare him because he's on a whole other planet of tennis due to his size. But in terms of Kevin Anderson, um, you know, uh, he entered Illinois, and I know that he was a very good junior as well. He entered Illinois to become a professional tennis player. Mm-hmm. So the coaches knew that. I entered Miami to become a professional tennis player. 
Stevie Johnson wanted to become a professional tennis player. They weren't going in saying, well, I really hope that I can become a professional tennis player one day. And so I'm going to try out this college tennis thing and hopefully I get a lot better. And that's not how that works. They know they're going to become professional tennis players. It's just a matter of when and, and how they, how quick they can develop. And, and, and if they're mentally and physically ready to be playing at the highest level. Right. Right. Well, I'd, I'd love to transition this conversation. Um, and we didn't really talk about the women as much, but, um, we can do that on another podcast, <laughs> but, sure. um, I'd really love to transition the conversation to junior tennis or back to junior tennis and this whole notion of the ITF junior circuit and whether or not it's a necessary piece of the junior development puzzle. So let's talk about that a little bit. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, would you so like what, to start? Yes, Go please. <laughs> no, you start. Okay. So you're the birthday boy after all. Oh, uh, yeah. No, a lot of cake tonight. <laughs> so some of the players are going to be having some nice cake with me. So you know what that means? That Harder workouts. Have a tougher day and they're going <laughs> to earn their cake. And I'm not going to really earn it, but I hopefully earned it over these bunch of years where I was out there busting my butt on the tennis court. And That's right. Tennis. But uh, <laughs> so so anyway, the ITF route. I, I, since I started coaching in 2010 and – I, I hear plenty of people that that come to me and say, should my son or daughter be playing ITF tennis tournaments? Um, my coach is really pushing to be for my son or daughter to be playing ITF tournaments. And we need to be going to the Caribbean and, and all around, all over the place to be getting these points. And it's going to really help my college tennis standing and, and da, 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 da. Okay. Here's, Here's the thing. Are you here to burst the bubble, Todd? <laughs> no, I'm here to give the reality and the truthfulness. I love it. Okay, about, go. About about this cuz I hear it all the time and it and I don't tell people that it drives me crazy, but many times I kind of just shake my head and and whatever. So, here's the thing. And I'll to give you a little story. So, okay. one of the top college coaches came over to to, to where I train the kids in my little system. And he was coming from another another uh, tennis academy and everything. And he said, I just saw, I, I see kids that are 120 in the world, Todd, and they are not very high-level tennis players, and they could never play in my lineup. Okay, this is going to blow a lot of parents' minds. And, and I said, I agree. I know. And so what he's saying is that people are chasing points, it doesn't mean that your that your son or daughter is a very high level tennis player, and if if you achieve if you achieve that ranking, I know a lot of parents that are listening to this would say, "God, I really wish my son or daughter would be a hundred in this or top hundred or top fifty in the world in in the ITF rankings." And man, I would love for that. And 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 we're starting out, and we're going to the Caribbean, and and we're playing all these tournaments, and and blah 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 blah. Okay. College coaches, they understand the level of tennis player that they're trying to recruit. Whether your son or daughter plays USTA, whether they play ITF tennis tournaments, whether they go out and they play professional tournaments, um, you know, the, the futures, uh, low-level professional tournaments, 
whether they go and play a bunch of men's and women's opens, um, whatever route that you choose, they understand it's their job to be recruiting the level of players that they're trying to get to come to their university. Um, the problem that I have, and, and I believe I wrote an article on this, is that when you travel to an ITF tennis tournament, that can be a week. It could be multiple weeks. And so if your son or daughter is a developing junior tennis player, you're losing out on a lot of quality time. And, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm saying this from, from a developmental perspective. And if your son or daughter is being developed very well and great coaching and, and great training and, and those things is that when you go to an ITF tennis tournament, your son or daughter is playing maybe one tennis match a day or maybe a singles match and, and, and a doubles match, but you're losing out on training and you're losing out on physical fitness as well. So what I do love about the USTA tournaments, most of them is that you play multiple matches in a day on the weekend and, and then you're back training. It could be Monday or Tuesday of the following week. And, and if the coach was with you at the tournaments, they're monitoring what you're doing well, what you weren't doing so well. And hopefully you're going right back to it to be developing those things to continue your process of becoming better. Now, when you go to an ITF tournament, you may play a match at, let's say, 10 in the morning and you're done by 12. Are you going out there with your coach in the afternoon for hours to be grinding it out and developing all the areas in your game? I'm sure the vast majority of, of parents and tennis, and maybe tennis players are listening to this, but you know, it's, it's mostly parents that listen to this, is that, no, they're probably hanging out, chilling out, going to the movies, maybe doing some of their schoolwork, which is great, but they're not developing to become a much better tennis player. At that point, you're trying to win tennis matches, which is great, but it's not, you're not going to be improving certain areas of your game by going out and, and playing ITF tennis tournaments. So that's the problem that I, that I, I have with it. And I'm seeing so many tennis players going out and they're achieving rankings of 200, 500, 800 in the world. And, 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 and that's great. But that, you know, I don't, I don't know what the, what the ultimate goal is when you're going out to play those types of tennis tournaments. And let's face it, it's expensive to travel to all those places. Right. Well, I didn't, I didn't bring up the financial aspect, but yeah, that's a reality. Um, I mean, yeah. yeah. Now, and, I've I've also heard, and and this is the way that I look at it. I've heard, well, there's so many so many tournaments in the Caribbean, and you know these are Grade Fours and Grade Five tennis tournaments, and and da da da. And so it sounds like people are excited to be going to the islands because it's you know maybe a little bit of a vacation. And I say, whoa, whoa, whoa hold on. If you want to take a vacation, then take a vacation without the rackets. No, no, no rackets. Take a vacation. Don't go there, you know, where where you're thinking of, well, I'm happy my son or daughter is playing a tournament and I'm going to chill out on the beach and they're going to just play some matches. But then you get upset that your son or daughter is not producing in the tennis tournament. It's either a vacation or it's a tennis tournament to try to go out and do very well. But, right. but, but besides that, most juniors and the vast majority of juniors have so many things that they need to get better at to be playing at the level of tennis that they would like to in the future that you are missing quality time, hopefully with, with your coach and, and, and the system that you're in. So when, when you're only playing 
one match a day and and not training you're losing out on a lot of quality time but but also there's a lot of kids that are that are going to play ITF tennis tournaments and they haven't dominated where 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 they're from in 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 their region or nationally and so they just said they just say well we have a chance to go play this or that and so they just kind of they're you know they they throw the kids out there to go play international tennis tournaments because it it sounds really good and there's foreign kids and and so I can play kids that I've never played before and and I you know I don't I don't really know the purpose of it um so but well I'll tell a, you I'll tell you from from personal experience when my son was in the juniors um and I wrote about this experience um I mean it's been several years ago now but there was an ITF junior tournament in Waco Texas and we had you know, conversations about whether or not he should go, whether he was ready and, you know, whether it was worth the expense and, you know, to pay for the coach to take him and to fly two people there and pay for hotels and yada, yada, yada. And we ultimately made the decision for him to go. Why? Because he wanted to have that experience of playing an ITF and, this was a way for him to get that experience. We had, you know, no thought that he was going to go and win the tournament. It was not about ranking or him, you know, being that surprise kid that comes in and beats everybody. It wasn't about that. We understood what it was about and we made the decision as a family to make that investment and do it. And for my son, interestingly, I mean, he went there and he, he had a terrible tournament. He, I think he lost his first match 0 and 0 in like 20 minutes. <laughs> it was just awful. Um, but uh, he, he did meet some kids. And to your point, as soon as his match was over, his coach started chatting with some of the other coaches that were there and arranged training sessions for my kid the rest of the time that they were in Waco. And so he was back out on the court and training with players that he had never seen before. And it was a really cool experience for him. Now, fast forward a couple of years to an ITF tournament here in Atlanta where we live. And at that stage, it was my son's senior year of high school. He had a goal of getting an ITF junior ranking. He didn't care what it was. He just wanted to win enough matches in an ITF tournament to finish his junior career with a ranking. That was important to him. And he made that happen at the Atlanta ITF. So, you know, I, I think there are different reasons that kids and parents decide to go that route, but to do it week in and week out to spend months traveling the world in search of low level, low competition ITF tournaments just to build an ITF junior ranking because you think it's going to help your child in the college recruiting process. That's where the fallacy is, right? Right. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So, but I'd like to go and ask you a question because you are the parent of a, of a developing junior player and, and everything is that, you know, he, your, your son had a, had a goal of, of getting ITF points and, that, and that's fantastic. You know, I mean, and you live in Atlanta and then you made the investment to, to go to Texas and, and play a tournament there. And, and obviously it was managed well with his coaches that he didn't have a great tournament, but he went and he worked on things in his game when, when his tournament came to an end. 
you know, in, in the first round maybe. And, mm-hmm. and, but he was out there training to become better. And then a couple of years later, he, he played a tournament in your backyard and, and he did well enough to, to earn points and everything um, so that he could achieve his goal of, of having a junior world ranking, which, which is fantastic. Now, my next question, Lisa, for you is, did it change his college, his, his college placement or recruiting from coaches? Did it open doors that he was now an ITF-ranked junior tennis player? No, no, not at all. Um, it made no difference in his recruiting process. What it did do, though, is it gave him a little more confidence, a little more swagger, if you will, so right. that when he was meeting with the college coaches, you know, when we went on visits, he had, uh, he, he felt better about being in the room with those coaches and being able to, tell them that, Hey, look, you know, I'm a senior. I just now achieved my first ITF ranking points. I am still developing and getting better. I have something to offer your school. It gave him that. And, you know, whereas his USTA ranking wasn't necessarily going to get him in the door, just having that feeling that he was on an upward trajectory in terms of his development helped him in recruiting. And so there was some value there for sure, but, but that's different than what you're saying, Todd, that's different than us, you know, going into debt to travel to the Caribbean for him to play low level tournaments um, in hopes of improving his chances of getting recruited. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I, I constantly hear about kids that are going to these tournaments to be, to be chasing points. And, and, and even if they're in, and even if they do well on them, say your child achieves a 300 ranking in the world, a 500 ranking in the world, what, what, whatever it shall be, it's, it's, it's not a great high level. And I can tell you from experience, I'm, I'm, I'm watching kids that are 20 in the world. 30 in the world in juniors that played the highest level junior grand slam tennis tournaments and they're in college and they're struggling in college. And you, and many parents are probably listening to this saying, I cannot believe that someone ranked 20 or 30 in the world, a top ranked junior playing the, playing the junior grand slams and, and, and these types of tournaments could struggle at the next level, which, which would be college tennis. And, it is a reality. If you actually do the homework on it, there's, it, it's been happening for a long time. It doesn't mean that your child's game is going to transition to college tennis. So I think, I think the parents need to be aware of that. And, and like I've said all along in any of our shows, hopefully you have someone managing your son or daughter's tennis career and making sure that the development is going on the right path and that you're choosing the, the proper tournaments and training and physical training so that the goals and dreams can be, can be attained if, if this is done properly. Right. And, and we talk about this all the time. College coaches are smart. They know better than to look simply at a USTA ranking, an ITF ranking, or even a UTR and make a decision about a player based on those numbers, right? I mean, 
they are looking deeper. They're looking to see what level events the child is playing, who they've beaten, who they've lost to. Um, have they been out injured for periods of time? I mean, the coaches are, they're looking at a range of factors before they make a decision to bring a player onto their team. It's not just about ranking or rating. And, and I think that's your point, Todd, about these ITF junior tournaments is, you know, if you've got the money and the time to travel the world for your child to play in these tournaments, awesome. I mean, it's a great experience. Nobody's going to say otherwise, but to do it with the idea that you think you're bettering their chances at college recruiting is, is a false, uh, a false idea. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it really, it really depends on the level of, of, of your child. That That's, that's the bottom line. And, and I, I've been, I've been offered some nice college positions and obviously I haven't taken them and everything, but I have many, many discussions with, with college tennis coaches. And so an, another, another aspect about this is that you could have, and, and many parents would say, my gosh, I would love for my kid to play all the junior grand slams. That would just be phenomenal. Uh, you know, we've spent a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of effort. And if they played those tournaments, that would just be fantastic. And then this guy, Todd Whittem, is telling me that there are kids that are playing these really, really high-level junior tennis tournaments, and they're struggling in college. Forget professional tennis. They're really struggling in, in, in college tennis. And so there's a lot of things that the college coaches are looking at. They may look at look at a player and say, "Well, you're really you're a really high level junior tennis player, but I'm not sure that you could become a much better player. Maybe maybe your level has tapped out. Maybe your your son or daughter is a little bit fried and a little bit burned out. You've played too much tennis. You've done too much training. Um, there's so many things that that an experienced college coach will look at." you know, as well as the ranking, but they're also going to look at the individual. If they're smart about it, they're going to look at the individual because they're making a four-year investment in your son or daughter. And so they need to be protecting their team, making sure that there's not a bad apple coming into their program, making sure that they're really gearing their program to becoming maybe higher level or sustaining a very high level that they're at already. They're, this is This is their job and it's their livelihood. And many of them have families and everything. And so they're, I'm sure they're not interested in, in, in getting fired because the results are, are becoming worse. And so that's what they're looking at. They're, and as well as they're looking at things off the court. And this could be another discussion, but the social media aspect of these junior tennis players, right. because as well as you know, the Instagram and, and obviously Snapchat and all these things on social media, they're they're monitoring this to to see what's going on outside of the tennis arena. So, like I said, they're making a four year investment in in your son or daughter, and they want to make sure that that it's going to go well for them and their team and their right. school. Right, right. Well, we're down to our last five minutes, Todd. So I want to actually four minutes. I want to just um, make sure that I give you the opportunity to to share everything you want to share. So, is there anything else you you need to tell us this week? Uh, no, I mean I, th- I think we I think we covered you know quite quite, quite a bit. Um, you know, is there anything more that you would like to speak about, Lisa? Oh, there's so many things, but you know, we're, we're coming to the end of this week's show, so we'll have to schedule another one. Darn it. <laughs> yeah, no, that, uh, 
that'll be good. Yeah. And I hope, uh, I really hope the parents, they, they listen to this show and, and they, they understand that, you know, a lot, you know, the, the reality of my son or daughter becoming a pro tennis player and, 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 and what it's going to take and kind of what's going on on the pro circuit, um, as well as maybe, you know, we spoke about the ITF junior circuit and, and the management of, of a junior player to make sure that, uh, you know, that, that, that you're not losing time. My, my mother, who comes to a lot of the workouts, because she lives just a couple minutes down the road, so she takes a walk with her dog and she comes over and and watches a bunch of the workouts with the players. Is that she always says, "Todd, you can recover money, but you can't recover time." And so, like I've said all along in any of our shows, is that the management of your son or daughter is so crucially important to make sure that they're heading on a path and that they're improving. Every time that they're going to training, they're having great workouts. They're proud of their workouts, and they're having a great time. They're having fun, but they know and they feel that they're becoming a much better player, and they're getting physically stronger. And and when they when they're ready to play in a tournament, they really feel like they're ready to to do very well. That's so important. Agreed. Agreed. Well, Todd, thank you. And I'm sure you and I will be texting back and forth about our next topic for discussion. Um, <laughs> we, we seem to never run out of things to talk about, which is awesome. And, right. uh, so I want to again, just wish you a very happy birthday. Have fun. I hope the kids don't work you too hard and thanks for being on the show again. Thanks, Lisa. I'm retired. They work hard. I only show them how to work hard now. Oh, well, perfect. Perfect. To my listeners, thank you so much for tuning in, and we will catch you next time on Parenting Aces. I'm Lisa Stone, and you've been listening to the Parenting Aces podcast. For tennis parents, by a tennis parent. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to us and write a review on iTunes. For more information on navigating the junior and college tennis journey, please visit us online at ParentingAces.com. Thanks for tuning in and sharing us with your tennis community.